Welcome to the Insight Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Josie Perry. Josie is a chartered sports psychologist and the author of several books, including The Ten Pillars of Success, Secret Strategies of High Achievers. I talked to Josie about her work with VIPs, or Very Intelligent Perfectionists, the effects of social media on perfectionism, how belonging is a key component of motivation, the BRAVE framework for facing challenges and improving performance, the drive of people with a purpose, and much, much more. Enjoy the episode. First thing I should maybe say is that I just finished recording with another psychologist, an educational psychologist, Melissa Morrison, and she asked me what I was doing for the rest of the day. And I said, oh, I'm about to record an episode with Josie Perry. And she was like, no way. That's like one of my, I love her and I love her books. And like, so just, you know, um, to start off with that uh, compliment perhaps for you, Josie. Oh, it's been my day. <laughs> it's pretty cool, Thank isn't you. it? And that was not intentional on my part at all to, to put you back to back. But I thought it was really funny that I, I mentioned your name and she got all excited that she'd be able to listen to this episode afterwards. Oh, thank you. <laughs> right. So you have worked with some top performers and I'm just, I'd love to know more about the, the, the type of performer that you've worked with in the past and, and what you do to, to support them and help them. I guess in the past, and particularly when I was training, when you're training, you work with absolutely everybody because you want as much experience of as many types of people who do as many different sports or activities as possible. Um, and a lot of what you do when you're training is actually just teaching mental skills. So, um, teaching someone how to do their own goal setting, how to work on their, their self-talk or their arousal control, um, or writing imagery. What I tend have tended to specialize in over the years of working tend to be a, a, almost like a personality type. And I call them very intelligent perfectionists, my VIPs. Um, and they usually come because they've got performance anxiety. So if you are highly intelligent, if you're quite perfectionistic, you tend to struggle a little more when it comes to having to perform at a high level, not because you haven't got the skills and not because you don't know how to do it, because sometimes it can matter almost too much to you. And often your identity will get very closely tied with what you do. So if I'm not in this position. I'm, I am hopefully quite intelligent, but I'm definitely not a perfectionist. Um, but I'm a triathlete. Triathlon's the sport I love. Um, and if I see my identity as I am a triathlete, if that's the way I introduce myself to people, because that's what matters so much to me, every single race, if you're a highly intelligent perfectionist, is going to start to feel incredibly scary. Because if you fail, what does that mean about you? It means you're a failure. And that can then be very scary. And that has a whole raft of cognitive and physiological impacts on your body, which means it becomes harder to actually do your sport well. Um, so I don't know how I've ended up working a lot with athletes like that, um, but it, it feels like that's, that's my client group, really. Um, and I do love working with them. And, and they're all absolutely fascinating and they bring so much to what they do. I feel my job is just to help them enjoy what they do more 
so that they can do it better. Interesting. How like how crippling is that perfectionism that you see amongst people? How common is it? Is it a very common trait amongst uh, high performing athletes? So I don't know because I work in private practice. Right. So it's not like I sit with a whole team of like forty athletes in front of me, and I can go, well, ten percent of them have this. Um, because I'm in private practice, people come to see me when they have an issue. Ah, okay. And so I only deal with people who have issues. It's very rare someone comes and says, I'm doing brilliantly, but teach me some new skills. Most of the time, it's because there's something going on. But there is a really good book, academic book that came out recently that really looks at perfectionism in sport and in dance. And that was very clear that perfectionistic tendencies are on the rise. Really? Um, And that this doesn't necessarily go into why, there tend to be two elements with perfectionism. There's the almost like the self-perfectionism where you're trying to set a really high bar and you will do whatever it takes to reach that bar. You'll never reach it because perfection doesn't exist. And even if it did, all you do is raise the bar a bit higher anyway. Um, But you're constantly striving to be better than you already are. And that causes some well-being issues because you just beat yourself up when you can't do it or when you haven't had time to do it yet. So there is that element, which I imagine is probably a very strong personality trait, and that's quite rigid. Although we can certainly see when some athletes have had certain parenting styles where they're constantly being pushed to be better and better and better, that that becomes quite rigid within their kind of adult life. The other element of perfectionism is social perfectionism, where you're looking around you and you're saying, they're better than me and I need to improve. And you're constantly comparing yourself with others. And I think that's important because when I was growing up, when I was kind of in my early teens, I only had, I know, the other 29 people in my class at school really to compare myself with or the other 15 girls that I did my ballet lessons with to compare myself with. And so I knew I wasn't great at ballet, but it wasn't in my face all the time. It was just once a week at class. Whereas now with social media, we get to see the whole world being better at everything that we do better than us, even though it's all imaginary and they're just picking up the glossy bits. Um, So I do really feel for kids now who are growing up with that, because if you have any element of social perfectionism, and most of us have a bit of that, and particularly teens who are desperate to be accepted and find their tribe and, and have that sense of belonging. And you're looking around and everybody else looks like they're having the best life. That bit can be really strong. So I can absolutely see why that might be increasing. And and when you've got that going on and you're trying to focus just on what you do, that's really hard. Yeah, of course. And even not just in like the performance world, but in the the holidays and the house and the cars, like you get a new car, but then you straight away see someone's got an even better car. You got a house, then you see someone else with a bigger house. You go on holiday, beautiful villa in Spain, but then someone you know on social media has been to the the Bahamas for a longer period of time in a five-star hotel. And so it's like, it's just relentless. It's never going to be good enough, is it? (laughs) No, and it's so quick. I always reflect when I started triathlon 20 years ago, to enter a race, you had to buy 220 magazine and you'd look in the back pages and they'd have all the races for the next few months listed with an address and you'd send off a form with two envelopes. 
and you'd get the first envelope back before your race with all the details and your number and stuff. And the second envelope was so that about three weeks after the race, they could send you your results. And you'd get like this photocopied page of results, right? Whereas now when I do a race, I cross the finish line and my watch flashes up with my position and where I've come because it's an instant message to a a text to my phone, which attaches to my watch and tells me how I've done. And that'll be before I've even like hugged my daughter or had a drink. Instantly, you know whether you're a success or failure. If, if that's your mindset around it. So it's the speed of comparison as well as the breadth of comparison now means we have to be very diligent and intentional about trying to focus on ourselves and what we want to achieve and not just comparing to everybody else. Right. And so is that the, of course, overcoming perfectionism, I imagine must take a long time and a great deal of unpicking but is that just kind of the first the first step that awareness around it like someone listening to this i'm interested in perfectionism um what what might be the first step like i said we can't solve it overnight but what kind of what are the what are the common things that you you talk about and offer how can people kind of get started on that journey if they if they see those tendencies in themselves so i don't think we would ever overcome perfectionism I think it's just who we are but from the approach I work with as a psychologist I work for an approach called ACT Mm. which stands for acceptance and commitment therapy or theory Um, and I love it because it's things like CBT can feel quite aggressive it's like I've got this issue and I'm attacking it ACT is kind of two or three versions on from that and it's much gentler and it's about trying to get us cognitive flexibility So perfectionism is about being very rigid. It has rules about what is good and bad and what you must or mustn't do. Whereas cognitive flexibility is about being able to have a wider perspective and being able to shift and move. So it's not about not still not trying to be your best. Absolutely in high performance and performance psychology, we want people to be striving to always be better than they were yesterday or be able to do more than they could do before but it's about having a flexibility of your mindset so that you don't end up hurting yourself, harming yourself. Um, So the first step of that is actually just awareness of of really starting to be aware and be really um, have a real self-awareness of what are you doing and how are you responding to things and, and trying to get a little bit of distance from what's a thought and what's a fact. Um, A friend of mine is a brilliant sports psychologist, always talks about taking the thought to court. (laughs) And I love that idea that you're taking your your little thought that's going on in your head. I am useless. I'm rubbish. I'm going to fail. I'm not good enough. I must be perfect. Whatever those kind of thoughts, even if they're quite core beliefs for you, you're taking that thought to court. There's a jury in front of you. And you're going to start to pull it apart. Is it true? And then most people will start to realise, like, no, but it'd be nice. Um, And it's like, well, what percentage truth is it? And we'll really start to pull things apart. So you can go, okay, is it a thought or is it a fact? And I was going, it's a thought. Right, we can have thoughts. We all have thousands of thoughts. I can't remember how many, but I've seen different quotes of, like, up to 60,000 thoughts a day. Um. 
And that's why things like athletes don't tend to like mindfulness, sets them on edge a bit, the idea of sitting there being quiet. Um, but things like mindfulness can be really helpful for just starting to become more aware of thoughts, but not reacting to them, mm. noticing as a thought. I often get my athletes doing things like Lego or drawing or coloring or swimming can be good for it, staring at the black line um, because that's a time to have the thoughts and to notice them, but not react, not do anything. Just go, oh, that's a thought. And to get really good at going, yeah, just some thoughts. Okay. I'm gonna, we do lots of different techniques. I'm going to put that on a cloud and watch it drift yeah, away. I'm yeah, gonna yeah. Put that on a leaf and it's going to float down the river but it's just a thought and we're full of thoughts. We don't have to respond to them all. It's a game changer, isn't it? A thought is just a thought. It's not our identity and we don't have to let our minds run away with with that thought, which is so so easily done, isn't it? And those are approaches I've heard about before and I've I've heard about kind of rating the thought or or rating that feeling that it's giving you on a scale of one to 10 and, and opening it out and thinking about how do, is anyone else thinking this thought like have I got anything in common with other people and you start to realize yeah you, you think about the fact oh, I'm not the only person in the world that's thought this about myself or is worried about this like and just that opening up and you go oh yeah this is this is common this is part of the human experience isn't it yeah <laughs> that's why I I kind of like feeling like this is my specialism mm. because I can then normalize that for people it's like so when somebody says, oh, this is awful, I, I don't know how to say this, it's so dreadful, and they say something, you're like, so common, don't worry. And it's not that I'm trying to downplay it, because it, it's a big deal to them, quite rightly, but it's that you're not alone. Mm. Lots and lots. And particularly, I work a lot with teenage girls who struggle with this, and it can feel very lonely, especially with social media, of like everybody else is having the best life with all these friends, and it's only me. It's like, it's not only you. I work with some of the best athletes in the world. And from the outside, you might look into their world going, wow, like they've got it all. I've not come across anyone that's got it all. We've all got some stuff going on. Um, sometimes it's physical for us. Sometimes it's mental. Sometimes it's emotional. Um, nobody's got it totally sussed. Um, but I think sometimes it's helpful to have that reminded that we're all struggling in our own ways and we're all just trying to get through the day. Um, I remember when I had my daughter, she's seven now, one of the most helpful things that anybody said to me when I started off of like, you've just been given this child and you're like, what the hell do I do? I'm not, no one's taught me a lesson in this, um, was everyone's fed and no one's dead. And I was just like, actually, I know it's a low bar to set. But when you're like three months in and you don't know what's going on and you haven't slept properly in a long time, just remembering that it's okay, it's a low bar, but is she happy? Is she tucked up in bed? It's okay. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think it really helps to know we're not alone in that. For sure. Sure. Oh man. So there's there's so much we can learn, can't we, from the the world of sports, the world, world of psychology. Um because I think so, so, so many of us are interested in what we can take from that 
um, in terms of our own performance, not just our own sporting performance. Of course, if I am, I don't know, a CrossFit athlete, I'm going to be looking at the top performers in CrossFit and trying to learn from them. But we also want to learn, we also, some of us are interested in learning from them in terms of um, their professional lives and their work, but also their family life. How are they balancing all of these things? Um, So yeah, I, I just, I love the idea of learning from top performers. Um, how kind of how applicable do you think it is? How practical? How easy? Um, not sure easy is the right word, but yeah, just is the crossover there, or do you get the kind of the criticism or the response like, well, it's easy for them; they've got X, Y, and Z set up, and they've got their nutritionist or they've got their training plan, whatever it is. So, how much actually can I learn from these people? Um, what, what are your thoughts around that? Um, so about half my clients are not athletes. Um, right. I work in the performing arts, so DJs, opera singers, dancers. I also work a lot in medicine. Um, people trying to get through exam, doctors trying to get through their next level of exams, consultants trying to figure out what they want to do next, um, and lots of business owners. I I can see why it is very tempting to want to to learn from the best athletes. I don't necessarily think that's particularly relevant. So the best athletes in the world are usually quite outlierish in the world. They're not, they, they have lots of things going on that makes them an outlier. Um, but we can absolutely take inspiration from them. And often somebody will say something. And if, if they've got similar personality traits to you, you might grasp onto that and go, yeah, great idea. I'm going to try that. And if it works for you, brilliant. What I do think we can learn from are the tools that elite athletes use, and we can use those same tools in our own lives. And and within sports psychology, you can get quite a divide between the researchers who are in universities teaching and testing all of these techniques and those of us who are applied and using them. But my goodness, I am grateful to them, <laughs> the, the researchers, because they spend a lot of time finding techniques and then really pulling them apart and testing them and experimenting on them and seeing whether they work or not. And then we get to come along and go, yeah, this is great. Let's try it. And when we see it works on athletes, we can also use it in medicine or business or performing arts or any other area. I work with parents who are struggling with being parents. We can we can use it in any other area. In fact, a friend of mine, um, sports psychologist, researcher, has just written a book on how to use sports psychology through the maternity process. Oh, interesting. Um, because she had a baby a couple of years ago and she suddenly started to realise there were all these parallels about goal setting and acceptance and using your values. And if you could put all of your work that you have in sports psychology into the process of getting pregnant, particularly if you have to go through something like IVF through to nine months of having something take over your body through to having the baby itself, which can be incredibly scary for some people through to those first couple of months. Amazing. She had all the tools there. She just needed to put them into a different context. And now she's written about it. Um, So, I will use exactly the same process for performance anxiety with athletes as I do for business people or consultants. 
Um, it's it's a seven step process I use, and it I will it will be a different context, but it's exactly the same steps, exactly the same tools. Right, and and in terms of tools, what are, are we talking things like? Deep breathing, mindfulness, writing things down. Like, are these these things come to mind to me? But am I completely off the mark? But are those some of the common tools that can help performers? Um, they might sit within a bigger concept. If okay. that makes sense. So, so the process I use with those, say, with performance anxiety, is called Be Brave. So we're looking at. Um, if we take that brave element, we're looking at being aware of your unhelpful thoughts. Mm. What are the thoughts that are holding you back? Notice them. So technique we might use for that is something called think aloud. You literally have a little microphone on or you have your mic on your phone. And when you're doing something that's quite tricky, you say your thoughts out loud. So you start to capture those thoughts. When we've got that list of thoughts, we theme them. So we can start to go, instead of having like 20 different thoughts, we start, might start to notice we've got a lot of thoughts around, I must be perfect. And we've got lots of thoughts about, I'm not a good enough person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Then the R of brave is to reassign. We're then going to reassign those thoughts because they're just thoughts, they're not facts. We reassign them to what I call safety seekers. So your safety seeker is a little character, lives in your threat system, and it wants you to stay safe. Loves you. It's not out to get you. Loves you. It just wants you to stay in your comfort zone. Does not want you to go and do something scary that might impact your identity in any way. Yeah. And we create safety seekers. So if I'm doing this with children, we'll draw them. I love it because a lot, especially um, sporty children, tend to be really good at art. Um, so I get some brilliant pictures back, and it might be like Gerald the giraffe that always tells them they need to be bigger and stronger. Um, and we give them characters. And it becomes a really nice shortcut. How's Gerald behaving today? Oh, Gerald's telling me I'm not good enough. Right, what do we do about that? So it's a really nice way for them to kind of capture it and go, oh, it's not me. It's Gerald telling me this. So it's not quite so personal. The A stands for advocacy. So this is more of a technique we tend to use that you need to change the conversation with Gerald the giraffe in your head. And you do that by reminding Gerald all the brilliant things you've done. And I do what I call a, a tube of truth or a confidence jar where we pull together all of the fab stuff about that person. Um, and it's, it's my favorite session, particularly with children, because their faces light up when they realize how cool they are. And they realize, oh, I've got all these strengths. I've learned these skills. I handled these setbacks. I did these difficult things. So-and-so said this about me. They literally physically write them all down and, and put them in a jar. And they've got a collection of all the messages they can give back to Gerald when Gerald gets a bit negative and a bit unhelpful. The V stands for values. And this is really crucial. So it is much easier to be braver and to do what we fear when we know why we are doing it. So it's kind of feel the fear and do it anyway in the service of our values. And, and adults might sometimes have done this at work. It's quite rare. We've actually sat there and really dug deep about what, what kind of deep core beliefs do I have that really matter to me? How should I be as a person? What's really important? Mm. And values can be super important because we can move towards them 
We can make choices in our lives that move us closer to those values. We can do them on a daily basis. We can build in more value-based actions to our life. So we feel like we're being more authentically us and a good person. But if someone violates one of your values, it's really going to trigger your threat system. Gerald the giraffe is going to kick off big time. If you have a value, one that comes up a lot in kids I see is um, fairness. We tend to grow out of needing things to be fair because we realize life isn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we get cynical. But, but with kids particularly, they'll have a lot of um, around fairness, right? That comes up so much. Um, and, and often when I'm seeing tennis kids, it'll be because they're smashing their rackets, they're losing it on court because somebody's cheated or not done something properly. So if you've got fairness as a very strong value and someone cheats, Oh my goodness, you can't handle that. You are ab- your emotional regulation is out of the window. You've absolutely triggered. You've flipped your lid. Um, and Gerald is on the warpath, bounding across the savannah. Um, so that's really helpful to be able to see all the situations where someone's values might get violated. And so we can help someone pre-kind of handle that beforehand. Yeah. Um, but we can also make that choice. I'm going to do this, even though it's scary, because this value matters to me and I want to be that kind of person. And then the E is for engage. And that's probably some more of those tactical things you were talking about. That might be an instructional mantra you give yourself, or it might be a motivational mantra, or it might be an action that you do, but it's something small that gets you back in the right place so that you're not kind of waylaid by the performance anxiety. So for me, I have this overall structure, but there are lots of different tools, I guess, that you'd imagine that come within it. Right. Okay. Oh, such a cool framework to to use to approach things. That's really, really interesting. And perhaps that can lead us nicely now into um, some other strategies because your your book, The Ten Pillars of Success, Secret Strategies of High Achievers, um, that's what this is about, isn't it? Like, what, what can we learn from these people and what, what strategies do they apply? Um, I suppose we're, you know, because of time constraints, we, we won't go through every single different one. But are there, are there some that, I don't know, are your favourites, if that's the right word, but, or just kind of some that are more popular? Um, I don't know, just, just some that you'd like to pick out and, and chat about, because I'd, I'd love to hear your, your take on each of those pillars. The one I think is most important of the 10, um, and it's not necessarily my favourite, but it had to go number one in the book. It had to be the first chapter because I think it is the most important thing we need in our lives, um, and that's belonging. As human beings, we need to feel like we belong, and that is not fitting in. We don't want to fit in. Because that means squashing who we are into kind of somebody else's box to feel squeezed and that, that other people expect us to be a certain way. When we are able to thrive, when we get kind of that self-actualization element of like, I am who I'm supposed to be and I'm thriving being that person, it's because we truly belong. We are accepted for who we are and what we bring to something. And I think so many of us go through life trying to find that. And when we don't have it, life can be really quite miserable. Um, there's a stat, I think a quote in the book from UCLA that loneliness 
is about the equivalence to our health of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And, and I think we can be lonely even when we're surrounded by people. So it's not about being with other people. It's about feeling like you belong to that group. And so much feels like we need to find our tribe when we're alone for any reason, when we haven't got the right people around us. Um, if we haven't got a tribe, life just feels so much harder. Um, and so as particularly, I guess, when I work with teenagers, a lot of it is teen life is about trying to find your tribe. And you, you can't always do that. There might, if you're in a small school, there might not be those people. If you're neurodiverse, you might really struggle because you're having to mask all the time or it's utterly exhausting to be social. Um, so you don't want to be, but then you find you don't have that sense of belonging. Um, so that's kind of the one I always go back to. And it comes up so much in when you're trying to motivate yourself. It's the first pillar of motivation. It's like feeling like you belong. Um, so that's often work we do quite early with clients. We'll be looking at, well, what groups are you already in? How can you make more of those groups? How can you engage more? How can you reach out and find more people that are like you? Um, because when you feel like you belong, life is so much nicer. <laughs> That's really interesting to, to, to talk about it as being kind of like the the most important thing to do with motivation. And I suppose growing up for me and maybe other people might relate to this is you, when you just like feeling like motivation has to come from the inside and, it, and it's up to me to get myself motivated and I need to just figure out what I need to do and like I've got to work through this to get myself motivated but hearing you say well no it's more about belonging and that that makes sense because it's much more easy to get it's much more easy to to train hard when I'm surrounded by people it's much more easy to to learn when I'm surrounded by other people and sharing ideas it would be I guess much more easy to start a new business if you were in a group of entrepreneurs that are all looking out for each other so that's a really interesting take that like a, a crucial element of motivation is belonging this, this is really geeky i have a favorite <laughs> theory um and it's a theory of motivation it's called self-determination theory and it says there's three types of motivation there's a motivation i cannot be bothered i am gonna sit on the sofa and eat my biscuit and have my cup of tea and we don't get anything done at that point We've got extrinsic motivation where we are doing things because there is some external reason for it. So mostly for elite athletes, you get paid for it. Mm -hmm. um, that's your job. For amateur athletes or for others, it's like, I want better results. I want to feel healthy. I want to make friends at my club. So external motivation is fine and it can work well, particularly when you start out doing something and you, you're able to see yourself constantly getting better. But they talk about the real kind of gold dust is when you've got intrinsic motivation, when that motivation does come from absolutely inside you and you do stuff because you love it. And they talk about three pillars of motivation that give you that intrinsic motivation. And they are the first three chapters of the 10 pillars of success. Right. So it's belonging, mastery, feeling like you're good at stuff because no one wants to go and do something if you're going to be rubbish and feel embarrassed and autonomy, having a choice and a voice over what you do and how you do it. 
that's the hardest because it's very difficult to take autonomy. You have to be given it. So within a school, you can't just go and choose to do what you want. There's curriculum to follow and there's teachers that tell you what to do. If you're working in an organization, there are rules and there's regulations and there's even in society, we have laws to keep everybody safe from other people. So um, if you are directing others, whether they're your children or whether you line manage people, giving others autonomy is super helpful. So I had an example of this before I trained in sports psychology 10 years ago. I worked in corporate communications. I was a comms director. Um, and I had a team, I think 15, 16 people. And I'd pretty much done every job within that team. Not within that specific team, but all the job roles within there. As I'd grown up through communications, pretty much done everything. I knew how to do all those jobs. So um, if something needed doing, I would tell somebody how to do it. I'd give them all the steps and expect them to go off and do it. Right Now, I know that was horrific leadership. What I should have done is said, this is the outcome we would like to see. You figure it out. You've got the skills. You'll do it better than I will because you're on the ground doing it. You go do it. Let's get a great result. And that would have been giving autonomy. Um, I did not do that. I was probably a pretty awful boss. Um, but now I can see that actually that would have made a huge difference to people's productivity, how much they enjoyed it, and all of the research backs that up. So when you have autonomy, you have mastery, and you feel a sense of belonging, you will be much more motivated to go out and do stuff. Yeah, I think it is something that schools need to learn in terms of their staff, because that's something that uh, a common kind of complaints amongst other teachers. I'm a primary school teacher myself. And yeah, it's just that that autonomy being being trusted to do things instead of just being given new initiative, new initiative, new initiative. Nothing is being taken away. Just things are added. Do this, do this, try it like this instead yeah. of instead of actually like, yeah, you figure out or give us your ideas, uh, like at least some kind of brainstorming sessions together, which which doesn't happen. So that's it's really interesting. I think Going back to what you say about belonging and, and loneliness, you know, by far the most popular tweet that I've ever put out there is um, is a tweet around loneliness that clearly a lot of people resonated with. So it's obvious that this is something that is um, affecting a lot of people, isn't it? And I suppose it, it makes me think of linked to that, like if if you are going back to what we said about outliers, if you are someone that's really passionate about sports, whereas your the friends around you aren't that passionate, if you're someone that's been working in a job like teaching, but you want to branch out and you want to try business and everyone is around you is telling you not to do it, um, it's, it's very easy, isn't it, for people like that who want to push themselves and grow and try new things because I know they've got like an, an unmet need or desire inside them, that then they quickly feel like, like who is my tribe who have I got around me um yeah. to talk about these things and like I've felt this for sure like who can I talk about this very specific struggle that I'm going through because I don't know none of my friends have started a podcast so like I can't talk to them about it can I so how yeah. um how can we find well, our I think tribe that's what I'm oh, sorry now, actually I think that's why social media can be so helpful. Yes, yeah. So while you have the issues that you're comparing people, it can also have the huge benefits that you can find your tribe mm. 
quickly. So you can go on a forum for people that run podcasts or career changes, and you can look at, they'll often have um, groups of people that will start working on things at the same time. So because I'm an author, I'm on loads of Facebook groups for authors and they'll have, we're starting a new group. We're going to write, I know, a thousand words a week and we're going to collaborate on X, Y, and Z. And you all get to do it together at the same time. So I think it can be really helpful that social media can help you see what's out there because without that, would you even know that there are opportunities to do certain things? And it can also help you find your tribe. Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. I would also, though, like to find more connections in real life. That's where I'm kind of maybe struggling a bit nowadays. But I don't know. I think that's maybe like on me to put myself out there a bit more. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. I don't know. How how else might we find belonging in the real world, not just online? Um, So with athletes... I will clubs yeah. will be incredibly helpful yeah. for that. Um, ones I tend to find actually elite athletes that will struggle quite a lot because often they'll be in a base that's very good for their sport, but they won't necessarily, if they're individuals, it's just them. If they're teams, sometimes they'll be up against other team members for places on yeah. a team. So yes, they're your friends, but they're also your rivals competitors um so that can be quite tricky with how you engage um but it i will work very closely with an athlete and we'll really pull apart their life of like who can you go to for this who might be a good person for this if you actually just want a weekly catch-up going on a club ride if you're working say with a cyclist they'll be slower than you it won't be the right training that you need but it will give you the engagement that will make you feel connected and part of things and give you a group of people to chat with and it's worth it. So sometimes it almost might be a, yeah, this isn't perfect training for me, but it gives me the connection I need. Or how can you tie it in? So with a runner who's training for marathons and they've got a crazy busy life, so they can't really go to like the run club, but they do want to feel that connection. It might be, right, why don't you do park run? But I know that's way too short for you, but why don't you run there, do park run, run back? So you've got your longer run in and you've still seen other people. You've still done something as a group. Um, so you're really proactively trying to have those those physical connections too. Yeah, oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, can I prod you for one more pillar, perhaps? One more that, that you think kind of um, could be particularly impactful, particularly interested interesting excuse me (laughs) I guess the one that lots of work comes down to is purpose it's knowing why you are doing what you're doing again I think that feeds into the motivation you need to know why why you're doing it but it can also really feed into things like courage so there is some stuff in our lives that is really really hard sometimes And it will give you that. You wake up in the morning and you look through your diary and you've got that sinking feeling in your tummy of like, oh, do I really want to do this? Um, We will do it and we'll do it well if we know why. Mm. There are some great books. There's a lovely Simon Sinek one on Know Your Why. Um, There's a TED Talk if you want to cheat. Um, (laughs) 
and see the whole thing in like 10 minutes. Um, but I actually recommend the book because it, it gives you loads of good stories. But there's some, in 10 Pillars, particularly the, the chapter on purpose, there's two stories I tell in there that really resonated. So there's one about a guy called Damien Hall, and he's actually the lead kind of interview in that chapter. He is a runner. He runs crazy long distances in places most of us would never want to run. Um, and if this goes out on time, on Sunday morning at eight o'clock, him and 170 other crazy people will be starting this race called the Spine Race. And it runs the Pennine Way. It's like 260 miles. They always do it in midwinter. There's lots of snow forecast. It sounds horrific. horrific. <laughs> Genuinely, not in a million years would I ever want to do this race. But these guys love it. Um, and he won it last year. Wow. Um, and Damien has purpose at his core. His thing is he wants the world to be a better place for his kids. And he wants to do that through helping governments understand the environmental aspects of a lot of their decisions. So he does lots of, he runs a group called the Green Runners. He does, he's written a book on how do we leave less behind as runners? How do we serve the world better um, environmentally? So when we were coming out of, I think the first lockdown in 2020, his goal was to run the Pennine Way and set a new world record time for doing it. And as part of that, his real purpose, he had written on his hand in great big um, uh, pen, FFF, Friends, Family, the Future. And he set up his whole thing to be as environmentally friendly as possible. So he didn't want people coming to cheer him on because they'd have to drive there. He had some paces but his paces were litter picking along the way. So actually they left the environment they were running through better. All his food was vegan. His food was all wrapped in compostable um, wrapping. So there was no um, litter left behind on the world because of his thing. Um, and he used that as his absolute purpose. He wanted to be able to go out afterwards with a platform because he'd set this crazy world record um, so that more people understood about our environment and how we need to protect it. He broke the world record by three hours. Jeez. Wow. And that story just serves me as a, if you have a purpose, you can choose whether you do something. Yeah. Similarly, another person in the book is a friend, really good friend of ours called Eddie Brocklesby, who is amazing. Um, she's 81. She does Ironman racing for fun. Um, she's actually going to ride across America next year in a race with three other women um non-stop i think they do it in about seven or eight days and she was doing an iron man and um her goal for the iron man was not to win her age group because i don't think there were any, were any other 75 plus women racing but it was to win her age group so that she would have a platform to talk about what matters to her and what matters to her is older people staying active so they have a much more enjoyable retirement. Mm. That's her thing. It's like, and she runs a charity called Silverfit to give access to older people so that they're not lonely because they've got people to exercise with and have a cup of tea with, and they get to do some exercise. And when she was doing her Ironman, the saddle of her bike broke. She had 40 kilometers still left to cycle before she needed to run a marathon. 
And certainly for me, that would have been a genius excuse to go, oh, bike broke, had to stop, never mind. She didn't. She just stood up and cycled to the end. And then she ran the marathon because her purpose mattered to her. And I think when we know our purpose, what drives us, it helps us make great choices. We don't waste time doing the stuff that isn't in line with our purpose. And it gives us um, a strength behind those choices. And we get to spend our time doing something that matters so that when we leave this world, we know we left it a better place. Yeah. Oh, wow. Talk about learning from top performers. Those are some pretty important lessons, aren't they? Those two people sound fascinating. I need to go and check them out. Wow. Thank you for sharing those stories. That's so cool. So cool. (laughs) Right. Um, Josie, thank you so much for your, for your time today. Um, yeah, it's been a really, really great discussion. I've, I've loved talking to you. Like I've been wanting to talk to more sports psychologists. So I'm just always so grateful for people like you for taking the time to to come on the show. Um, you kind of like, yeah, it's it's just, it's, it's brilliant. Like sports psychology is just so fascinating to me. And yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No worries. Thank you for having me. So I have... Three quick fire questions that I'll ask you before you yep. go. Um, the first one is, what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? I think this goes back to that perfectionism bit. Um, I wish I was taught that failing was absolutely fine. Do you want me to delve? No, no, no. Quick fire, I said. Quick fire, but no, I agree. Uh, Maybe, yeah. Failing like, <laughs> If Carol Dweck had been in schools like 20, 30 years ago, it would have been good for me. <laughs> ah, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, there's oh, a lot on, of discussion about that mindset thing. Now it, you've got to delve. Been, now you've got to delve. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's not been replicated anywhere. Um, and I like the, the theory and the idea that we, I think when people are scared of failing, they do things that are safe and they don't stretch themselves and they don't try harder. So I can absolutely see some of that benefit. Um, but I think there's much more research to be done in that area. However, I can see why people have grasped it and grabbed hold of it because it feels like a really positive approach to take. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I love it. I love how like, I put something out there and a guest is like, no, you're talking nonsense, Sam. Like, I need to hear this. <laughs> That's good. Or not maybe nonsense, but like, oh, there's there's more research needed. We need to talk more there's about it. There's a little this. bit of controversy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Next question. Um, what's one habit you've introduced to your life that has helped you feel great, happier, healthier? A gratitude jar. So I have one on my desk. And every day I will write something that I'm thankful for that happened in that day. Um, and I'll often get my seven-year-old to put in something too, because that's always really insightful about nice. what they see as something that was really cool in their day. Yeah, yeah, nice. And the last one, if you could give everyone in the world one book, which book would you give them? Uh, so it's a book called Essentialism. Ah, uh, Greg McEwen. a guy called Greg McEwen. Yeah. yeah. Um, which in summary says... It's about that purpose idea. When we know what we want to do and what matters to us, it becomes far easier to say no to all the things that we usually say yes to, and particularly the things we say yes to out of kind of fear, obligation, or guilt. And then when we say no to more things, it leaves us the headspace to go out and find the stuff that matters. 
because most of our lives we spend so much time just saying yes to stuff either because we feel we ought to or a people pleaser or we fear we might not get any other opportunities we've got no headspace to actively go out and hunt out what would matter and what would make a difference and I think if we want to be purpose-led and really leave our decent contribution to the world we need that space to be able to figure out what it is we want to do and so we have to say no more that's great good one right before you go you got to tell us where can people connect with you kind of follow your work and where can people get um copies of your books as well where would you like them to to go if they want to buy your books um so my website is performanceinmind.co.uk and there's a section on there called Performance Zone, which has loads of worksheets and blog posts and things about um, trying to perform at a high level in different areas that you can look through. Um, I'm still on as X now, isn't it, as Josephine Perry. Um, so I'm sliding over to Instagram, which is Josephine Perry 76 um, And then my books should be anywhere you can buy good books. Um, the main ones are The Ten Pillars of Success, which is looking at 10 amazing people who've got 10 very strong characteristics and how we can all use those. So there's worksheets and things in there. There's I Can, The Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness, which is for teenage athletes and it is a workbook. So you can write all the way through it, but it really helps teenage athletes get all the skills they need to be brilliant. Um, and then for coaches um, or kind of PE teachers, there's a book called Performing Under Pressure which is the nine reasons that athletes tend to go and see a sports psychologist and 64 different techniques or tools that you can use with them. So it's kind of a guide to, to trainee sports psychs or to those working with athletes on how to start using mental skills more. Brilliant. Right. Thank you so much again for your time. And I'm looking forward to, for, to staying in touch and maybe getting you back on the show to uh, unpick growth mindset and why I'm so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> no, thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon, Jason. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you found my conversation with Josie insightful. If you did enjoy the episode, please share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it interesting. And of course, you can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.